Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is January the 23rd, 2017. This is episode 1936 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, as we move closer and closer to, for the, you know, the year that was the episode catching up and figuring out what we're going to do then. We are starting to see more and more people in the uh, history segment born this year still alive. You'll see a bunch of those today. But of course, it is a listener feedback show like most Mondays. I'm not going to say all Mondays, but most Mondays is where you send me email. You send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Remember, there is no secret super squirrel jack email. I give you My personal email. I have a bunch of emails, but they all come to that one. They're all like, I have one at Gmail, I have an old Yahoo one, I have one for TSP Wiki. In the end, they all end up at jagatthesurvivalpodcast.com. And the way you say, Jack, this is for the show, so don't delete it without looking at it first. Put in the subject line, TSPC. That stands for The Survival Podcast, right? TSPC, and then comment for Jack, whatever. And uh, I'll take a look at it, and we'll try to get you on the air. I've got a bunch today. I'm going to move quicker than I usually do through individual topics to keep the show relatively normal length and time, but cover more stuff. I'm going to try to do that more. And remember, you guys following my protocol by asking or, or giving me the specific point or question in one sentence helps me cover more material and get stuff screened faster. Here we go. Today we're going to talk about, well, a little quick announcement. Dates announced for the TSP workshop in, in March. Some details about it. Thoughts about setting up your own podcast equipment. Two questions on that this week. I'm going to combine them together and give you kind of the bullet point. Go, go, go get it done. Because you're not going to, you're not going to learn by listening on this one. You have to go do it, but it's not hard. Uh, the importance of home food production. I have a question on that. A first knife for an eight year old. I think this is a cool question and I have a recommendation. A very significant quote from a recent Netflix series. I have not seen the series or heard of it, but I do like the quote and I think it's very germane to what we've been talking about a lot lately with bullies in the school system. Uh, thoughts when stocking a stock pond. Put, throw a fish in there. Well, we'll look a little deeper than that. Question about a Ruger 380 as being sufficient as a carry gun. Why and how would I sell a live duck versus keeping it for egg production? I, I did a recent, the last, the last episode of season two of the Duck Chronicles. I said, this year we're bringing in a ton of Welsh Harlequins and some Drakes and, uh, we'll be selling next season, uh, you know, well started duck, uh, Welsh Harlequin ducklings. So why would we do such a thing when we can make so much money selling eggs, is, is the question, uh, with that same duck. Another look at the coming Obamacare public option. The guy has a different take on it than I do. I'll discuss it. I think he could be right, and he's probably not. I'm probably right, but we'll see. There's going to be something that will be akin to a public option. Like I said, right now there's a Madison Avenue marketing firm figuring out what to call this thing so that the people don't lose their shit when they hear about it, because they certainly won't call it the public option, because if they do that... Holy crap, the, the right will go ballistic. Anyway, um, why I changed my opinion on the Bradley slash Chelsea Manning thing, and I don't support his, her, whatever the hell it is, pardon anymore that, that Obama did. Uh, somebody finally gave me an answer to a question I've been asking for years. And I'm going to point out the 
irony of how many, well, you'll see when I get there. Uh, I have a question that came in as a call last week uh, about the 223 Wild and the 742 Remington. Uh, one, one person asking a question on both of those, and I meant to cover it last week. It was even in the intro, but then when I went through, I don't know what happened. I put that recording in the wrong player, whatever, it was done, and I never covered it. So I'm going to, without playing the call, just back up and cover that question because I remember it in my big, giant brain uh, today. And I'm going to talk about, at the end, starting out homesteading with minimal capital, especially when you've dug yourself into the student loan debt hole. Um, and it should be a fun show. I'm kind of jazzed about it. Before we get into all that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Recently, a new magazine showed up at my house. I had never seen it before. I had never heard it before. It was Self-Reliance Magazine. And I took a look at it and realized it was from the same people, Dave Duffy and his crew, that have been producing Backwoods Home. They sent me an introductory copy because I've been a subscriber to Backwoods Home for 20 years. I opened the pages and I was blown away. Pretty much you take what Backwoods Home has done for two decades or more, up the production value, and take 100% focus on self-sufficiency and self-reliance topics. Homesteading, canning, cooking, you name it. That type of thing, all of the politics stripped out, hardcore how-to. That's the new Self-Reliance magazine. You can learn more at self-reliance.com. Hey, guys, what do you call a gun without ammo? Well, I call it an overpriced club or perhaps a way to get a loan at a pawn shop. So I keep a good supply of ammo around, and I always shop BulkAmmo.com when I need more. With shipping that's so fast you'll wonder how they do it, all the common calibers and a discount for MSB members on top of it, check out BulkAmmo.com today and give them a shot at your business. And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is PetSlumber.com. It is in the TSP Business Directory mentioned today. They offer handcrafted pet beds made in Fort Wayne, Indiana. They stock many colors and sizes that are, were unavailable before they opened the business. Right now you can use the discount code in TSP Business Directory for 10% off your next order. You know, funny that I get that today as our supporter because Dorothy and I were just thinking, you know, it's probably time to get Charlie a new bed. Charlie has worn his bed out. It's about three years old and that dog loves his bed. And it stinks and it's worn through and I think he's pretty much, you know, given it, given it heck and it's, it's time to be replaced. And I never even thought there'd be a pet bed maker in the TSP business directory. And it's reinforcing for me, myself. I tell you to do it all the time. When you're going to buy something, just check. Just check if somebody's in there that does run a search on it. Um, and what a great business. What a great business. The pet business is a multi-billion dollar business. And this is a cool idea. So check them out. PetSlumber.com. P-E-T Slumber.com. Uh, and again, you get 10% off if you go through the business directory. Uh, next up, let's take a look at the year. What's the episode? The year is the year 1836 because the episode is 1836. And I have, we are at the turning point. Going to recommend you read that one on your own because I'm going to read When Fascism Fails in Japan. And I'll tell you what, um, There's a reason I'm going to do that, and I'll cover when we get there. Notable births today, though, uh, or today, notable births in 1936. Antonin Scalia, Supreme Court Justice and conservative intellectual. Alex says, I miss him. John McCain, living, Vietnam War hero, senator, and presidential candidate. He says, I'd like to miss him. <laughs> James Dobson, living, founder of Focus on the Family, psychologist and Christian author. Jorge Bergoglio, living, who was he? 
He was Pope Francis in 2013. And in entertainment, Walter Koenig living Star Trek's Pavel Chekhov in the original series. Burt Reynolds living Smokey and the Bandit, The Longest Yard, posed nude for Cosmo Centerfold. Mary Tyler Moore was born this year, 1936. Star of the Dick Van Dyke Show. She's also living the Mary Tyler Moore Show and co-founder of MTM Enterprises, which spawned many TV hits in the 70s and 80s. Michael Landon, who was best known as Charles Ingalls in Little House on the Prairie. I kind of miss him. He was kind of a good dude. Jim Henson, creator of The Muppets. Man, I kind of wish he was still around. He was a cool dude, too. In other news, Liberty ships are in production. These cargo ships will come to symbolize America's wealth. They're meant to supply the military during war, though. 1936, and we had no intention of entering the war? No. Yeah, that's marketing. Uh, the Japanese Baseball League is established. It will be reorganized into the Nippon Professional Baseball after the war. And Queen Mary makes her maiden voyage. It is currently a tourist attraction in Long Beach, California. When fascism fails in Japan, there will be the second failed revolution in Japan. This will be the second failed revolution in Japan recently, interspersed with assassinations as the mood strikes them. There is a nominal civilian government, but really the military is running things because they are the only ones considered clean. Life has been hard during the economic turmoil following the financial crash. Communism has its charms, but the youth of today are pushing for something better than equal drudgery for all. The young fascists want to reform, and they want it now. I call them the young fascists because translating the word kadua into English is not helpful. They sympathize for their elders, but they want what they want. On a, that snowy February night, the young fascists stage a coup d'etat. The prime minister escapes, but 150 men break into the home of Admiral Suzuki. He leaps to the closet, looking for his sword. It's gone. So he steps out to meet his attackers unarmed. After trying to reason with them, he finally says, Go ahead and shoot. He receives several bullets to the head and shoulder, but remains alive. They kneel, present arms, and leave. Eventually, the young fascists will surrender and receive trials and be executed. Japan is sick of assassination, so the grip of military control is now absolute. My take by Alex Shrug. Miraculously, Admiral Suzuki survived the fight in the last days of Japan's empire, but he had been opposed to war with the United States and remained opposed throughout the war. Obviously, the young fascists were torqued off about several things, including the limitations the U.S. placed on Japan's navy. This goes back to the Russo-Japanese War when Teddy Roosevelt stepped in to negotiate peace. He also imposed limits on Japan's shipbuilding. In essence, the treaty required Japan to always have fewer holes than the USA and the UK. However, the treaty did not specify tonnage. So instead of a lot of little coastal vessels, Japan built large holes because each counted as one. It torqued off the young officers that they had to work around an unfair treaty. And those bad feelings placed them in the opposite side of the US in World War II. Indeed. And there's like a little thing there like, I think you usually hear a little, at least when I was a kid, you heard a little sort of kind of bit about that when you are leading up to World War II in history class and all, but... The way we seem to remember World War II is, so the Japanese were just out there doing their Japanese thing, and we were over here doing our thing, and they were causing trouble with China, and we didn't really like that, but we didn't really do anything, and you know, we were minding our own business one day, and we never did none in Japan, and all of a sudden they came over and bombed us in Pearl Harbor for no reason at all. Um, there's a lot more than just this. Uh, and I would, I would just ask people that say, well, they still shouldn't have done it. I, I agree, but how would you feel? If your nation had a treaty with another nation, and that treaty stated, you can't have more ships than we do ever, period. Would, would, would that bother you? 
I would think it would bother you, you know? I, I really do. So there's 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 more than that. I don't know how much more of it we'll see in the history uh, segment, but we did some things that were clearly in the violation of the rules of, of neutrality and war uh, with Japan uh, prior to the bombing of Pearl Harbor and how we treated them versus how we treated people they were at war with. I'm just saying. Like, if you're going to claim neutrality, there's certain things... You don't do, and, well, we did those. Some of it involves money. Well, it always seems to involve money. Just just saying, it might be interesting as we move toward war here to take a look more at the Japanese side in some ways than the German side. That seems a lot more well-covered, uh, the build-up to the, the war in Europe. And, of course, it wasn't Hitler that bombed Pearl Harbor. It was the Japanese, and we tend to just kind of gloss over. Well, they bombed us, and we entered the war, and, of course, we, we went into the European theater, too. Not quite the way it all worked out. With that, let's go ahead and get into uh, the main topic of today's show, your questions for me. And uh, the first one is, again, I'm going to combine two. I'm just going to read them both and then kind of handle them as one. Oh, no, wait. i got to tell you about the uh, TSP uh, workshop here at Nine Mile Farm in March. The dates were announced today. Those dates are going to be uh, the 23rd, 24th, and 25th of March. Uh, with students able to set up the camp on the 22nd and able to stay over till the 26th. Uh, a lot of people seem to do that because there's quite a bit of adult beverages consumed. That alone is a good reason to not be uh, tempting the Tarrant County Sheriff's deputies that patrol the area with uh, driving in a weaving line, not to mention it's not safe for you or other people if you are partaking. Uh, camping out here is probably a good idea. Anyway, um, this is going to be a great workshop. I I'm pretty stoked about it. I I really like the format that we've come up with, which is far more of a multi-instructor um, type thing, where we have a lot of different subjects and a lot of different instructors, with each instructor generally doing a single workshop. And last time we did, um, we did seven sessions a day, and I, I think it was a bit much. And uh, we had no buffer between them. Like it was like it ended at this time and it started, you know, like if the session was 11 to, to, to noon, then the next session was noon to one. And what I did this time was I cut it to five and I put a 15 minute buffer in. So that'll give John Shimada, who will be doing our video for us again, uh, the ability to get set up and not be so rushed and things like that. And then we've, we've bulleted in two hours, uh, at, at the end of the day, the last session ends and there's two hours between then and, and, and dinner time. And that gives people time to do impromptu sessions, just hang out, uh, go take a shower, go take a nap, whatever it might be. And uh, it also opens up things for instructors to do certain things. The first one is to open something up is Patrick Rohrman from MT Knives. I'm giving him the first spot on the first day. He's going to do a class on how to actually make a knife. So some of you guys have been thinking, I want to get a knife from kit from knife kits and make a kit knife and learn how to do it. You know, you'll learn exactly how that process is done. But the other thing he's going to do is he's going to have, uh, for up to 10 people, I think it is, he's going to have roughed out blanks of high quality stuff, not just a cheap kit knife and, uh, high quality handle material and all. He's going to actually help up to 10 students completely build out a knife. Uh, I'm actually, he's talked me into buying a drill press and a bandsaw, although it wasn't very difficult to talk me into that. So they'll be here, uh, for, for that class because they're going to be necessary. And students will actually be able to build a knife. And during that two-hour period would be the best time to do that because you don't have to miss other classes. So that's just one example of kind of what we've done a little bit differently this time. Um, we also have a, a really great um, assortment of things. Again, 
building a custom knife uh, is going to be done with Patrick. Uh, Chris Prater is going to do something on small engines. Homestead automation we're going to talk about. Fermented foods and alcohol infusions, I'm going to teach on that. We have an unannounced surprise session with uh, our buddy Mike Vertries that we will not ever tell publicly what it is. And then that night during that two-hour period that some people will be working on their knives, uh, there's going to be a special bonus with me and my buddy David that kind of ties into what Mike's doing, but won't tell you, and that stuff's not going to be videoed. It's for students only. Uh, we are going to do a, a thing on the next morning, on Friday morning, sous vide cooking. Uh, Jake Robinson is going to do that with assistance from me. We're going to have someone actually come and show you how to build, within one hour, how to build an AR-15 platform, uh, which is a great because then you can build your own platform, save money uh, when putting together that next AR. We're going to have a young gal come in and talk to us about roasting coffee, either for your own fun at home or actually how it can be a small business for you. Uh, leatherworking with Jeff Deere. The Trump Economic Impact with Jean Pugliano. Uh, that's going to be an interesting one. Hobby scale aquaponics with a guy named Richard. Uh, high density food production, which will include some aquaponics, then with David Siegler, my buddy David. Uh, then we're going to have a homesteading and cover cropping combined presentation from Nicholas Ferguson. On and off grid uh, solar with Karen Houston. And anarchist woodworking with a dude named Brad. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. And uh, that's a hell of a lot of value for the 500 bucks it, it takes to attend the workshop. Uh, that's going to go on sale 9 a.m. Central Time, Monday next week. Set your reminders with the instructors taking student seats, because uh, most of my instructors are taking student seats. That's part of what they get is a guaranteed seat. I think I have about 28, 30 tickets to sell to everybody else and it goes to MSB first and it won't, it will not see the light of day on the other side of that. So what'll happen is you'll have to log into your MSB account 9 a.m. on, uh, on, on, on Monday morning and there'll be a link there to sign up. And if by some miracle at 24 hours later there's any seats open, I'll open it to anybody and everybody. Last time it went about two hours. Like there was like two hours and six minutes or something like that. And uh, what that meant is anybody that really wanted to get in could get in, but if you waited till lunchtime, you didn't. So hope to see some new faces here. I love seeing all the regulars that have been to a lot of them, but, uh, man, I like seeing new people show up too. TSP Workshop Spring 2017. We're going to that new schedule, one in the fall, one in the spring. That way we have time in between to recover because it takes a lot of time to recover. Uh, real quick before I get into the uh, the first question today on podcasting, I hear from people, I'm going to bring my kid, I'm going to bring my girlfriend, whatever. Okay, look, here's how this works. If you're bringing somebody with you, they are a paying student, Okay, even if you're an instructor. I generally let children over 14 come at no cost if their parents are willing to look after them, but I mean, I'm strict about it. We've had kids here before. When I wasn't strict about it, we let kids come at any age or anything like that. We had kids climbing on my dog's back. He's an old dog, my, my shepherd. He's an older dog. He can't have that. Chasing the animals around, breaking stuff. They took the float out of the pool and kicked it like a soccer ball while it was a perfectly good soccer ball. I, I want to be family friendly, but this is really an adult's thing. This is an adult level curriculum. Okay. Again, children under 14, if you want to bring them with you, that's fine. They're under your supervision. Anything under that, then I need, you need special approval. You can talk to me about it, and, and I would advise you to do that before you sign up, take a spot, and then say, oh, by the way, because that doesn't go over real well with me. 
Um, so I'm pretty upfront about that, and I'll, I'll put out another post later this week detailing more of the details about that. I've had children as young as 10, 12 years old here, and when it's like one kid and they're in the right frame of mind, it works out. When it's somebody bringing their three kids, it's, again, guys, you got to understand, we have to take care of all of the people here, and every person you add to it is taking away the resources that we can provide to somebody else. Anyway, I hope I don't sound family unfriendly. Just there's certain things that are for little kids, and there's certain things that are really not. Okay, And this is one that's not really for little kids. All right, so... Uh, question then is on podcasting. Nicole says, and Nicole's actually one of the people who will be teaching a class here at the uh, TSP workshop. Not sure if you have time to answer this, but what is your recommendation for a podcast setup rig, mic, etc., for new podcasters? I started one last summer, and I'm doing an episode on lessons learned uh, about after 20 episodes. I already have a bunch of recording equipment uh, around from having sung in a rock band for 15 years, so my advice on equipment sucks. Uh, I'm asking several prominent podcasters what they would recommend since most people do not have a condenser mics kicking around their homes. Uh, if you shoot me an Amazon affiliate link, I'll use that in my show notes. Well, thanks for thinking of me that way, Nicole. Like I said, since I had two questions about podcasting this week, I'm going to um, combine it with a question here from James. James says, how do I start a podcast using WordPress? What podcast hosting options are best, especially for a new show seeking to grow toward monetization? Details I'm in the process of starting up a 3D printing business offering custom designs and printing services and a podcast targeted at the maker community. So the timing of Austin Martin interview 1933 was perfect. In fact, after a long day at work, I was thinking about plopping down on the couch watching Netflix. Just the voice in my earbuds is saying, you have to quit binge watching Netflix. That got me working again. I have been teaching people 3D printing for five years and have been starting to take paying jobs. One going right now for a wheelchair mods for a disabled veteran. For the next couple of years, I expect printing jobs to be the money marker, but I'd like to start a podcast for eventual monetization. I intend to publish three times a week, 30 minutes or so each. I'm still learning audacity, so I'm not ready to publish yet. Thanks for all you do. Your show has motivated me to break free from the job. Uh, some, my day job as a high school teacher. Okay, listen. If I've motivated you to freaking move to something more, You are ready to publish, and you're making an excuse. I don't mean to beat you up, but I'm going to beat you up a little bit. Okay? All of this shit, I'm just learning, so I'm not ready. Okay, in, in, in five minutes at YouTube, you can learn how to do basic editing in Audacity and, and export as an MP3 and freaking upload and publish, and your podcast is going. All right? So I'm going to give both of you actual answers. I'm not going to beat up on you and... I'm going to be a little more fair to Nicole because she's actually publishing. She just wants a gear recommendation. Okay, a little, little softer, I guess. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. When you first start doing your podcast, no one is listening. So get your ass in gear, get content published, and then you won't have to ask me how to do it because you can screw it up because no one listens to episode one until you become somewhat successful and get some traction and they like you. They go back to episode one and they go, gee, he wasn't as good back then and the audio wasn't as good and it wasn't as polished and look how far he's come. Or you can sit around waiting to get ready. So let's just not get ready. Let's go do. All right. So let's start out with the uh, recommendation. Nicole says uh, most people do not have a condenser mic sitting around the house. 
I'm going to say you can go get yourself a really good condenser mic for about a hundred bucks made by a company called Samsung. And I can't forget that because I'm standing here looking at a little green light, speaking into a microphone, and right in front of me in block all capital letters is the word Samsung. S-A-M-S-O-N. C-O-1-U. USB Studio Condenser Microphone. And you plug it into a USB port on your computer, be it a Mac, be it a PC, and you pull up whatever recording thing you're going to do, and your voice will sound just like this if, well, if you sound like me. But it will be as good a quality as what you're hearing right now. I've been using this microphone since, I believe, 2009, maybe 2010. Definitely since I went full-time with the show, and it was actually a gift from a listener that said, because there was times in the past where I would do maybe one show a week from home when I would stay at home, uh, one day a week and not go into the office. And I said, hey, man, I just have this laying around. You can give it a shot. Send it to me in a really cool metal case. I have a second one because I bought a second one to get somebody into podcasting. I won't say who. And I gave it to them, and they didn't. And then I gave it back to me, and I gave it to another person to get them into podcasting, and they sent it back, and they didn't. And so I've been trying to give away a second microphone for years now. And people like do one show, and then like I'm like, if you're not going to do a show, give me the damn thing back, and I'm going to get somebody to use that microphone one day and get their ass into podcasting. So... Samsung CO1U. I don't use a mixer board. I don't use anything. Um, I actually have switched to doing my my phone interviews using an Apogee, A-P-O-G-E-E mic that's made specifically for the Macintosh. I'll put a uh, a link in the show notes for that as well. And I, I do my my podcast recording now, my my interview recording on my Mac. I had too many times that Skype recorder with a PC failed me. I have a little app that I use now uh, that I'll put a link into as well, along with Skype on the Mac. It actually records in video format. It's a little advanced, um, but that's what I'm doing now as kind of a, a stopgap until I figure out what the hell's gone on on the other side of things. But for years, I've simply used um, Skype and uh, Aztec Skype recorder and or Pamela on a PC to record my, my interviews. That's all that I've ever used, and it's worked just fine. As far as the uh, WordPress plugin that I would recommend, uh, I use a plugin called PodPress, and it's no longer supported, but it works just fine, so I've continued to use it. Um, it works great. And you can get the, the, I guess the replacement for it, I, I think would be the, the right term, um, from a company called Blueberry, uh, that's, uh, actually spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. It's the Blueberry, uh, PowerPress podcasting plugin. And, uh, that one works really good too from everything I've read on it. But the truth is, the, the big thing you get out of a podcasting plugin with WordPress is you get a nice little player that you can kind of set little things on and maybe you get something where you can, you know, easily embed your logo so it shows up in Google Play and iTunes and stuff like that. But WordPress itself natively supports a podcast. If you just link directly to an MP3 file in WordPress, it'll show up in the feed. It'll end up in iTunes once your feed's in iTunes and all that stuff. All right. So, I, 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 I would recommend this, this, this plugin that I also have a link in the show notes already for you guys today by Blueberry. And I would say there's probably dozens of them. And they, all you really need to do with, and this is why WordPress is great. Go to the plugins comport portion where you're logged into WordPress and look at add new plugins and search podcast. 
you'll find dozens of plugins. Look at the number of active installs. Look at you know the the, the how happy people are with it and things like that. Plug it in. Throw a freaking file up there of, of a frog croaking or something and see if it works the way you like it. If it works the way you like it, use it. If it doesn't, don't. Just publish the post you know, non-publicly so that you can just check it out. And don't don't try to make this like... See, what I think happens is people, well, I need to find the right this and that. And I appreciate coming to me and asking me. And I know on some level it's just I want to know what you use so that I can... If it works for you, it'll work for me. I get that. But there's also this, well, I need this, and then I need this, and then I need this, and I need this, and I need this. And there's just this constant kicking of the football down the field without actually picking it up and taking a snap and trying to actually throw it down the field and get you know a first down or a yard or anything that actually moves you toward the actual delivery of the podcast. Because it's something people, when I hear somebody, I'm going to do a podcast. Well, how long have you been going to do it? Over a year now. No, you're never going to do it if you continue to do what you're doing. Just get up and go do it. And I can tell you, one of the most successful podcasters out there today that's built a successful show out of this community is no less than John Pugliano. And if, if, if you call John up on the phone and say, John, what did Jack tell you when you called him and said, how do I start a podcast? He's going to say, he said, just do it. You're smart enough. Go use these few things and just do it. Stop thinking about it. Go do it. So I did. And the reason I always push that is because it works. John is proof. You know? John is absolutely proof. The Wealth Setting Podcast is a very successful, regularly occurring podcast done by a guy with a servant heart that wants to help people learn to control, understand, and manage wealth. But it all that 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 was all there, but the podcast had to come from just do it. Alright, so um, those are the plugins that I use. As far as monetization and, and hosting, okay, so if you heard the interview with Austin Martin last week, he used the term digital sharecropping, and you heard my response to it. I love the word. I hate doing it. So digital sharecropping is when I host my podcast with Blog Talk Radio or Libsyn or some other shit like that, or I host my site on WordPress.com. No, 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 no. If you're going to do something and you want to make money with it, You get your own hosting. You have WordPress installed on it if you can't figure out how to click a couple buttons. If you use HostGator for your hosting and you log into your control panel, there's a, a fast install or quick install, something like that. You click it and you say install WordPress. You fill out a form. You click submit. It's there. Right? So, and then you just start learning how to put themes in and stuff like that. Okay? Learn how to do plugins and stuff. You just go learn how to do it. How to install WordPress in control panel. Google, YouTube video, 14-year-old kid shows you how to do it. And you do it. And you get it freaking done. You know? Um, and you host on your own server. Now, I spend about $666, weird Satan number, right, in, in hosting fees uh, for a dedicated box for this podcast. You don't have to do that. You can use HostGator. I used HostGator right up until I was sucking down about two terabytes of data a month, and they shut me down. You're not going to do that for a very long time. By cheap hosting, by the time the bandwidth becomes a problem, email me back, and I'll tell you where to hook yourself up with you know, very high-end hosting at a very reasonable price. But I'll give you the company right now, 100terabytes.com, which is actually 100tb.com. 
Don't go there now if you're starting a new podcast or a new website. You don't need a dedicated server, and you're going to need additional help. I have people that I pay a little money on occasion to do things for me because it's beyond my capability. Where when I had um, HostGator, when that was sufficient for my needs, I had amazing support. That's why I recommend them. Have your own domain, your own domain name, host your own content right from the beginning. Don't use free shit. Get a good microphone. The CO1U from Samson is damn good enough. Learn to edit in Audacity if you have to. I edit in Sony Vegas. It is way overkill, like massive overkill for audio editing. But it's really easy to do audio editing, and I'm really fast with it because I used it for video editing for years, and I already had the software. But I have done uh, podcasts edited in Audacity. It's a little slower, I don't mean from a, like, once you're done and you click render, it's about the same. I mean from a standpoint of the, as you are editing it, it's a little slower to, to get things done. It's a little, it's not as intuitive to me. Of course, I've been using Vegas since 2006, so that probably makes it less intuitive. I do all my recording. Right now, I'm recording in Audacity. I record in Audacity. I export the file. I drag it into Vegas. I do my editing, and I, I lay it out. Okay. Um, but I have, when I've been on the road with a MacBook and done a remote podcast, done everything in Audacity, and it's not that hard. And, well, how do I add music intro in Audacity? Add music intro to podcast in Audacity. Search YouTube. That's how you do all this stuff. All right? So I'm not going to beat it up anymore, but those are my recommendations on uh, services and, and products. My big recommendation, go do it. Don't worry about not being ready because you're just learning. You, 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 there's, a, there's a little DLL file that you'll have to get. Uh, Lame, I think is what it's called, Lame DLL, for Audacity to be able to export into MP3 natively. Um, but it tells you that. and You just Google it and you find it and install it. I will give you one more tip, one more great tip. When you record with Audacity, export your files All your whole project, when you export it out, is a .wav. Don't upload it as a .wav. People will hate you. You will like crush their bandwidth. It's just too big a file. But export as a .wav. Get another product. It's free. You can get it both for for uh, for Mac or PC. It's called Level Later. It is the easiest program to use in the world. It doesn't even have any functions. You open it. And it just sits there. You grab any .wav file and you drag it in there, and it levels out all the sound. So the exception is you would not append your music, your intro and exit music, because you want music to have variation, right? You drop that file in there, and it, 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 it processes it to a leveled file. And wherever, like if it's in a folder, there'll be a new file in the same folder that'll say, if, if your file was, uh, today is 123.17, would be the name of my file, it would be 123.17.output. Grab that, throw your music on it, export it as an MP3, And you'll have a nice level sound. That's what I do every day. And it's really easy. And it, again, drag, drop, and it just sits there and makes a little thing so you know it's working. Uh, that, that's probably one of the best tips I can give you on keeping your podcast from having like really loud, really quiet, really loud, really quiet, and get close to the microphone. I'm often far from the mic, but I project you probably don't especially in the beginning when you're a little apprehensive. So get up with a close microphone gate. You'll get that deep, rich sound. 
with that, let's go ahead and get into the uh, next question. That one went way longer than I intended. Um, I have a question on the importance of home food production. I kind of like the way that it, it was phrased at me. So let me read it to you. Hey, Jack, I was wondering what your thoughts are on the future of our food and the importance of growing your own. I've been thinking about this a lot lately after hearing you talk about the destructive nature of our modern agricultural system and companies like Monsanto. I truly think the best way to ensure quality food for ourselves and for the future is to have more people getting involved in urban backyard agriculture. You once said that even producing 10% of your own food will make you 10% more self-reliant. That idea really struck with me, and it changed my way of thinking. I think there's a lot of folks out there that would like to produce some of their own food, but think you can't because... They have a small urban home or live in an apartment. I'm growing microgreens and keeping a few quail in a terrarium in a small basement bedroom. Uh, I don't get all my groceries in the basement but by any stretch of the imagination, but how far would that get us if more people understood their potential? If they can just see the possibilities and get a taste of it, maybe they will even want to move somewhere and do it on a larger scale. The idea of people getting involved in urban agriculture has inspired me to start a YouTube channel and get more people started producing their own food. Thanks for the shout-out. On the Regen Ag page, it really helped jumpstart the urban aviary subscriber base. I remember that now. I just hope more people can get involved and start a better path toward having a source of reliable quality food in the future. Thanks for all you do. Your podcast has changed my family's life. You pulled me from the Sean Hannity indoctrination station to reality. I am now a raging voluntarist. You show me my wife the light amount of government schools, and my, my, you showed my wife the, the light about government schools, and she has quit her job as a teacher to stay home and homeschool our children. You have also inspired us both and given us the tools and motivation to build your own business. You never know how much your podcast means to us or how much it's changed our lives. Thanks, brother. Keep up the good work. Jaron from Northern Utah. Well, man, thanks for the kind words. Uh, I just want to say when people say, you changed my life, no, no, you changed your life. I made you aware of some things, and it became important to you to then make those decisions for yourself because plenty of people listen to me every day and don't change their life. So I have no power. The power of change always lies in the heart of the one making the change. Remember that. You can inspire people to seek it, but only they can choose it. It's really important that people remember, don't give me that power because I don't have it. And if you give someone power that they don't have, basically you're abdicating the power that you do. Just remember that for me. Okay, as far as the importance of, of home food production, um, very much so. And it, it, it's taken a long time, but I think we're getting close with our, our quail product that we've been talking about for over a year now. Uh, the quail tracker and the quail stacker. I think my, my partners, uh, Brad and Steve, are finally about ready to pull the trigger and get this thing out. And it's one of the reasons that we're doing that is to kind of move this, this idea of home food production to people, to put food in the backyard again. And I think that one of the bigger things that we need to be thinking about is, is not just the act of growing food. Growing a garden, if that's the only thing you're going to do, you want to grow tomatoes, peppers, beans, lettuce, spinach, chard, and a couple other things. And that's all you're going to do. I don't care where you are. I don't care how harsh the environment is. If you will focus on building soil, learning your trade, and, and really, instead of doing 20 different projects, you just focus on every day, I'm going to go in that garden. If something's wrong, I'm going to figure out what's wrong, and I'm going to fix it. If there's a weed, I'm going to pull it. I'm never going to have to pull a lot of weeds because I'm never going to pull more than, than can grow in one day. Right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna love on this. This is gonna be my thing. I'm gonna grow a garden. You're, within two seasons, 
You're going to be a fantastic gardener. And I don't give a damn if you do Metweiler. And if you don't know what it is, don't worry about it. I don't like it. Or if you do it with wicking beds and aquaponics. Or if you do it with just straight-up gardening. Or if you do square-foot gardening. Uh, if you do conventional gardening that uses some things I wouldn't. Uh, or you use full-on organic. You follow the Howard Garrett methodology. I don't care what you do. If you do what I just said, you are going to be a fantastic gardener in one or two seasons. And you're going to produce more food than you can use. If you say, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go into quail production. I'm going to produce quail for meat and quail for eggs. I'm going to have little tractors, even in my suburban backyard. I'm going to move them around. You're going to have a fantastic yard. The, 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 the health of your, you're, you're not going to have to hardly water within a couple of years or, or worry about any fertility or anything. You should have this beautiful garden that, or yard that you will have to mow occasionally. And you will develop a solution where you are producing so many quail and so many eggs, you can't use them all. Okay? Some people will do both of those. And it's a good thing to do. But how many people really are stretched for time or budget or resources to do one of them? Lots. But what if you did one and your neighbor did the other? You know? And what if, like... All of the scraps in the garden that your neighbor had, he just pitched into a bucket over the fence, and you threw them into a little thing on the side of your quail tractors, and the quail made compost out of it. And then you threw it in another bucket, and he just grabbed it and used it in his garden. And he gave you vegetables from his garden, and you gave him quail and eggs. And then what if you know people are like, I want to do mushrooms. Well, that's another thing. If you find a good source of logs, learn how to do proper inoculation. Make sure that your logs are stored properly. Learn about when to, 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 to ino you know, inoculate, when to uh, soak them, when to cause bloom on them. If you learn all of that and you focus and you dedicate yourself for one year, you grow more shiitake mushrooms than you and your two neighbors can eat. Well, what if one was doing the mushrooms, one was doing the vegetables, one was doing the quail? And how many micro-economies of... Four to six to eight neighbors can we build like that? If you, in a small urban environment, decide I'm going to do nothing but grow fruit trees and fruit bushes and fruit vines, I'm not going to worry about annual gardens. I'm not going to do any of that. I don't have time for quail. I'm just going to, I'm going to be out here every day. I'm going to build soil in my backyard. I'm going to sheet mulch. I'm going to put in drip irrigation. I'm going to prune those trees. I'm going to learn everything about backyard orchard culture. Right? Imagine a neighborhood built on multiple cells like this. We're not everybody's trading with everybody, but everybody has somebody they're trading with. And everybody's doing something. And, and if you worked hard and developed the skill of lacto-fermentation, which we'll talk about today in the item of the day, and became really good at lacto-fermentation, within a year you'd have a hundred amazing different recipes that you could make up from vegetables and things like that. Well, just let it keep rolling. And this is what we don't have in America that we should. We should have millions of micro-economies like this going on that do not involve cash. They don't involve Bitcoin. All they involve is value for value. And sometimes a person in that situation maybe has a different value that they offer. The old lady down the street that's always available to keep an eye on the kids, even if she's not directly babysitting, Just, you know, they're going to be outside for a while, and she's always sitting out in her, 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 her front porch just watching the neighborhood. Just the fact that she has everybody's number that has kids and will let them know if something's going on and something like they used to do. You know, that's worth a, a jar of pickled garlic, isn't it? 
isn't it? Right? You know, or the fact that she lets your kid cut her grass and gives him 10 bucks for it. You know, that's worth a basket of shiitake mushrooms. That's worth a few cartons of quail's eggs. And a little opener and you teach her how quail egg works. It's worth that, isn't it? You want to, see, people like, well, we want to, we want our nation back. We want to restore America. We want to make America great again. You build a million little microeconomies like that and America's so damn great you don't know what to do with it. You know, you'd actually believe what Trump said when he says, you're, you'd have so much winning you're going to get tired of winning. I don't know that he's ever going to give you that, but that would give you that. That would give you that. Winning the right way. So that's kind of my thoughts on the overriding theme there. Next one's an interesting one. It says, hey, Jack, my son is turning eight years old in March. Yeehaw. Happy birthday to your son. And I think it's about time to buy him his first pocket knife. Do you think the Victor Knox Swiss Army Junior Knife is the best choice? More details. I've been really excited to give my oldest son the responsibility of owning his first knife. As mentioned before, I'm looking for suggestions. Also, along with this knife, I was thinking about giving him some other outdoor survival types of tools. The things that come to mind are a compass, emergency whistle, a book titled Survivor Kid, a practical guide to wilderness survival, a magnesium fuel bar for starting campfires, life straw, small tactical bag to keep most of these. I mean, I think he means bag or backpacks as a small tactical bag to keep these items in comes to mind. Of course, some of the things mentioned would have to be used only under my supervision. Do you have any other suggestions? Feel free to elaborate on what every boy should know and do before he reaches 12. Thanks, Jack. I just really enjoy listening to your show, man. This is a great question, and I love this. I, I think because I'm not a guy that's out, like, changing diapers or, or, or whatever, people don't get how much I love kids. And when I really love kids, you know, like seven, eight, when they get to the point where you can have logical, rational conversations with them and start to actually guide them versus just fill their needs, that's where, that's where I really think I shine, and this is, this is that. Uh, let's start out with the basic question, the Swiss Army Junior Knife. Um, actually, Swiss Army Junior 9, I believe, is the designation. It sells for about 18 bucks. I have a link in the show notes so you can take a look at it. It's got some cool little contours in the handle, um, you know, made by Victor Knox. And if it's not made by Victor Knox, it's not a Swiss Army knife. It's a Swiss Army pattern knife. Um, it's okay. I, I like it. The, the big thing that makes it kind of suitable for... Uh, younger, uh, kids, it is, one is that it is a locking blade, so when that blade's extended, it is locked out. And, um, it, so that is somewhat helpful. No one wants to close a knife down on your fingers, though. I mean, I grew up using all different types of knives, you know, at age 8, 9, 10, and I never closed a knife on my hand until I got one of those fast opening things and you're playing with it. And I don't think one of those types of knives is a good knife for a child 8 years of age. You really don't. Uh, the other thing that makes it safe, though, is the blade is like a blunt tip blade. There's no point. Like, you cut the hell out of yourself with it, but if you're doing something and you stab yourself, you're probably not going to stab yourself. Now... There's an equal chance that instead of gliding off the backside of the blade, it'll glide off the front and still cut you, uh, which may may or may not be worse than a stab. You know, It depends on how it happens and how sharp you keep the blade. So a knife's a knife, and if a knife is going to do the job of a knife, then it is possible to either cut or stab yourself with it, and therefore it's more important to worry about technique than trying to make a knife you know, with a cork on the end of it like in... Uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, where, where Steve, Steve Martin was stabbing himself in the eye with the cork on a, a fork on a cork. Um, the other thing I'd point out is that there is a large blade and a small blade, and the small blade is pointed. Kid's gonna, and it's also got a Phillips screwdriver in it that's pointed too. 
So if your kid wants to poke himself, he's going to figure out how to poke himself. It also has a saw blade in it, which I think is very effective. It has you know tweezers and uh, a toothpick, and I think that's a nice feature in your Swiss Army knives. So I like the knife overall. However, the way I look at it, if I want to get a child a first knife, and I'll actually want to make a big deal out of it, I'm hoping that it's something he'll have in his, his drawer when he's a grown man with a kid of his own and think about handing it down. A knife that's a little more functional, that has a little bit more going on, and without being like one of these crazy ones that's like, you know, huge and it's got fork and knife and spoon and dinner plates in it and stuff like that. Just a little step up is the Swiss Army Fieldmaster. It has a bottle opener slash can opener and a flat tip, two different sizes for flat tip screwdrivers. It's got a small blade and a large blade. It is not the safe blunt blade, but it's not a really super pointed dangerous blade. It's got small scissors. It's got the saw. It's got an awl. It's got a, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it? A Phillips screwdriver. Uh, the awl can be used as a sewing needle. It also has the, uh, the tweezers and the toothpick, which again, I think is a nice feature of Swiss Army knives. It just has a, a great deal of functionality. And I, I just think it's a bit better of a knife and it's 29 bucks. So it's, 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 only you know uh, eleven twelve dollars more than the uh, the junior and and to me it's just a more functional tool and it just seems like something that would have a lot more staying power and if you're worried about your kid using the knife on this unsupervised then he shouldn't be using the knife on the other one unsupervised easier uh, either it's just it's just not that much more safe. Another knife you might consider, or something, I guess, similar to it, um, would be a knife by Schrade called the Old Timer 440T. And I have a different reasoning behind this one. The 440T Old Timer, first of all, it's a very small, compact knife. It's a good-looking knife. Um, it is a, a conventional pocket knife. Like we all used to have when we were, well, if you're as old as me, you're an old fart or older than you had one at something similar to this, uh, like a Benchmade or something. You didn't have all kinds of fancy locks and stuff. And you had to reach in there and kind of get your fingernail in there and pull the blades out, that kind of an old knife. Well, what this has is four blades. And those four blades are a sheep's foot blade, which is, ironically, to try to help you not stab yourself when you're doing something. They used to use them to uh, trim sheep's foot. That's why they call it sheep's foot. Uh, and when you, were, you had a hoof that you're, like, trimming the animal's foot, if you slipped, you'd be less likely to stab yourself. A Warrencliffe blade, uh, a clip point blade, and, uh, and what have you. So you have these four different blades. So it would give you the opportunity to teach this kiddo, like, this is why we use the different blade pro profiles. And that knife's $17.80 on Amazon. I have a link to it as well. So that would be a reason for that. The other thing I've always liked about these old little pocket knives like this, we've all let a knife get dull. Okay? We've all let a blade get dull when we shouldn't. And then we really need a sharp blade. Well, if you have four little blades in a knife like that, and one of them, you don't have at least one of them that's really sharp, shame on you. Two is one, one is none, three is for me, four is even more. Right? So that's kind of why I like that. So not every blade is optimum for everything, but... Uh, I'll tell you what, that one little blade on, the little skinny blade on there, well, is just dynamite for skinning squirrels. It really is, or any other small uh, pelt work and things like that. I actually used one of these uh, to skin an awful lot of animals uh, back when I was in my trapping days for skinning muskrats and, and raccoons and stuff like that. Uh, it was a great little knife for that. Uh, so that would be another option. As far as other things that I would recommend, one thing I would recommend is maybe you think about it's time for the first BB gun. Uh, my son got his first BB gun at eight uh, because my wife said, well, one day she said, 
I said something about a BB gun. And she goes, well, I wouldn't have a problem with that. I was out the door. I was out the door. And I think kind of when the kids are small frame like that, the, the, the great first gun is a Daisy 105. Uh, I have a link to that in the show notes today. They're about 30 bucks. And uh, they actually make them better. Like a lot of things get worse over time. Uh, the Daisy 105, when my son was a kid, the, the stock was plastic. They now actually make them with a wooden stock again. They look like a, a scaled-down Red Rider. Whenever he says, well, why not a Red Rider? Well, if you got an 8-year-old and he's a little bit big for an 8-year-old, okay, okay. Uh, but the 105 has a short length of pull. It's lightweight. You, you get them off to shooting the right one. That's definitely an adult supervision thing. Now, when I was like 10, I had the ability to run away with my BB gun without adult supervision, and I probably should have had some from time to time because I did some things I shouldn't have done, but eh, nobody died, nobody lost an eye, so it's it's all good and well. Uh, so that would be something that, that I might consider. Um, another thing I would consider is getting a copy of the American Boys Handy Book. This book was originally published in like the 1890s, uh, and it would probably give most uh, liberals uh, a fit to know that a child was reading this, and that's reason to get one alone. The soccer moms will lose their shit over it. Um, can't have them knowing that, yeah, like this is what kids did uh, all the way up to I, when I was a kid, teaching things like how to make at ladles and sling bows and stuff like that. That would be a really cool book to get. Uh, the fir I first learned about this. A friend of mine named Kurt had an original copy, and I, I kind of leaned on him a little bit to get him to sell it to me for a number of years, and he was unwilling to do so. Uh, and then, lo and behold, in the modern age, and books out of copyright, somebody brought it back, and it's available in reprint. And you can order it on Amazon. I think I've featured it before as an item of the day. It's called the American Boys Handybook. You know, as for the laundry list of other stuff, you know, and even the multiple things that I gave you today, I, I, I have a suggestion on that, though. So his birthday's coming. Get him one or two of these things. And then get him you know, one more item a month for the next year or one item every three weeks for the next year. Figure out what you want to do over that year and, and do that. Parcel it out so that we can get this thing and spend a while learning how to use it before we put it in our bag for whenever it's necessary. You know, flint and steel uh, or a, a ferro rod or whatever and teach them how to, how to start it. First of all, here's how you get a cotton ball on fire. Okay, that's great. Now you can get a cotton ball on fire. But a burning cotton ball does not always equal a campfire. So now we can learn how to build a campfire. You know, and then we bring the next thing in and the next thing in and the next thing in. And this could be really cool. If you wanted to make it like a big birthday, give him a book that like says, you know, the dates on it and one new item for my kit. And it's basically like an exchange. So you got to get out in front of it, right? But, you know, three weeks later, four weeks later, whatever it is, he comes to you and says, Dad, today's the day I get and he doesn't know what it is, but it's the next item for the kit, like a coupon book. How cool would that be? Because that, that starts to – see, and the reason I say to do that is it starts to build anticipation. First of all, you can have a great plan with what you're going to do with kids, but you'll slack off, and if there's not some sort of concrete reminder, you know, oh, I'll get it to you next week or whatever, and, it'll, and then the kid gets busy with a video game and he lets it go, you give him that book, he won't let it go, and therefore you will have to fulfill your obligation, which is not so much the giving but the teaching. And it starts to build this anticipation, so it's something you're going to do together, you know, in a certain amount of frequency. And it, like for your next coupon to be valid, you have to develop some level of proficiency with it, so it's a little challenging. And he's going to get there because you're going to make sure he does. But, you know, having that sense of a real accomplishment. I really did learn how to make a fire with a cotton ball and a, and, and a piece of metal. Dad helped me, but I learned to do it. I was able to do it. 
I really did learn how to use a knife without cutting my finger off like my mom said I would, right? Things like that. I really did learn how to sharpen my knife on my own. Dad helped, but I learned. So one of the things you might consider is, a, is, a, is just a simple sharpener for the knife and learning the skill of sharpening. This is like back to like the, the multiple economies. This is what's wrong with America? We don't do this anymore. Everybody did this. You know what this was? They're like, oh, that sounds like Boy Scouts. You know, when we started leaning on the crutch of Boy Scouts, we started leaning on the crutch of public education. Like, it's great that Boy Scouts might do additional things and learn all these things and more, but these are basic life skills that anybody should know how to do. Let's take another one. This is a very short one. It came to me from Mike, and Mike said, Episode 2 of Netflix new series Frontier opens with a quote from Ellie Weissel, which I thought was quite applicable to the topic of bullying that has been discussed on the show this past week. We must take sides. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. Now, I don't know this series. I don't know what it's about. I don't know the context of the quote, but I love it. And that's what I've been trying to say with bullying. Like, There needs to be some systematic way to take the side of the, the, the person that's being bullied. You know, a campaign with a bunch of celebrities saying, it's not nice to bully, so don't do it. Yay! Will be about as effective as, please vote for Hillary Clinton. That didn't work either. I think even the people who voted for Hillary Clinton, they didn't do it because Meryl Streep said to. So that's not going to work. And, and I think we need to be instilling in our children that when someone is picking on someone else, it's wrong, and the stronger people around should stick up for them. I think it's the only solution, and I'll go back to the quote one more time. We must take sides. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. So if you stay neutral in a situation where one side's weaker and being aggressed on, and, and, and I'll tell you the, one of the stupidest things, we need to teach, teach kids to stand up for themselves. You dumbass. I know that sounds good, and I know in your fantasy world you were never picked on when you were a kid, and you stood up for yourself, and you punched that bully in the nose, and then you and him became friends, or whatever fantasy bullshit you have. But the reality is bullies do not pick on people who can stand up to them. That's why they're bullies. I mean, like, what do you call the bully that chooses to pick on the kid that can stand up for himself and beat the bully's ass? Here's the answer. Worst bully ever. Failure. That's what you call him, a failed bully. So he's either going to then learn his lesson or he's going to go figure out, hey, you know what I need to do? <laughs> next time, next time I should figure out who's weaker and go pick on them because I can get away with that shit. That's what they do. I see all these memes on Facebook, some tough guy ready to rumble, some freaking picture from, like, what's that, Fight Club or something, and teach our children to stand up for themselves and all. You can take certain kids, you can put them in every martial arts class under the sun, you can teach them Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and some guy that's 100 pounds heavier than them, and there are those kind of size discrepancies in our, in our education system, okay, it's still going to beat their ass, or four of them will. They run in packs, they run in pairs, they run in groups, they, they pick out the weaker kids. And even if you teach your kid that, that's fine for your kid. What about the next kid? We must take sides. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. Thanks for that quote, Mike. I, I, I completely agree with that. Um, next question comes from Lee. Lee says, any suggestion for folks before adding fish to a stock pond? Any updates on the catfish you put in your pond? We bought a six-acre place recently and looking to restock the pond with catfish and hybrid bluegills for both food and fun fishing with kids. 
The pond shrinks down to about a quarter of its size. It currently is during the summer. Divas section is still 8 to 10 feet at that time. Thanks, Lee. Uh, if you want to put catfish and, and hybrid bluegills in that pond and you have some source where you know where they're coming from, you're, you're going to buy them or whatever. Just buy them and throw them in. They'll be fine. I mean, seriously. Uh, you, if they, you know, you get them, they'll come in a bag. Stick that bag in the water. Let it float around for a while to equalize it, just like a big fish tank thing. And then just, just put them in and go on with your way. It'll be fine. My catfish have done really well. Uh, at one point, I thought they were gone. They weren't. Um, there's plenty of them in there. They're all about a foot long now, a little bit over a foot long, some of them. Uh, they continue to grow. I continue to go down there and throw feed to them when they're eating. And uh, I probably should feed them more, and they'd be bigger by now. And my pond's really little, and my pond ain't eight feet nowhere. My pond is barely four feet at the deepest, barely, and maybe not quite. Maybe more like three and a half, three foot ten, something like that. And if they're going to live here in this heat, in my little ass pond, they'll be fine in your big ass pond. I, 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 God, I would love to have an eight to ten foot deep pond. Oh, oh, my heart would, I would, I would be down there fishing every day because I'd, I'd stock the hell out of it. Um, there's a couple of things to think about. When you, you say hybrid bluegill, what you're looking to do is avoid, um, overpopulation, uh, because they're, they're mostly males and therefore they don't spawn anywhere near the frequency. And, and, and people say they get so big, but I've seen just plain old regular bluegills seem to have a better growth rate to me anyway, despite the claims of hybrid vigor and things like that. And you have a, a couple solutions with your you know population control of your bluegills. Uh, one is just catch a lot of little ones and feed them to your chickens or pigs or whatever, use them for fertilizer. Uh, two is feed them. I mean, that's that's a big thing. If you're giving them supplemental feed, uh, you're going to have a lot less problem with stunning. You're more of a fish farmer then. Um, but I'm, I'm a big fan of, of and, and this is illegal technically in some places, but uh, what grows in your area is uh, what's native to your area and is adapted to your area and breeds in your area. Uh, I have no problem with people that say, you know, I, I went out fishing and I caught a whole bunch of really nice bluegill. I put them in my live well. I was going to take them home and I was going to, was going to fillet them and eat them. And then somehow they fell in my stock pond. You know, if you have a, a problem with that, you know, technically being what you're not supposed to do where you are, and some places do, you know. And some fish, yes, and some fish, no, and what have you. And what people say is, you can introduce diseases. You could. Oh, okay, see, birds fly, and they get fish eggs, and that's how people worry too much. People worry way too much about shit, you know. Um, but your best source is a good uh, stocking uh, truck or something like that that comes around and you can you know go buy bags of fish and stuff like that. I do have a tip though if you ever are buying fish to stock a pond with from like someone like we have a company that comes to feed stores here and my catfish came from them and we went and we bought those I bought those fish I brought them home one floated one out of 300. And uh, so I was really excited to hear they were coming back. And David and I went to get more fish for various reasons. And almost all of our catfish were dead by the time we got home. Almost all of them. And they took forever to get our fish. And what we kind of worked out between us was they were probably up there sorting through floating dead bodies to get our living catfish. And when David got home, he had dumped two big bags of fish into about a third full IBC container Of, of water that was just clean, you know, water. And uh, the ammonia level was higher than the strip would read, even diluted with all the IBC water. So I would say that if I ever go buy fish from a fish truck again, I want to look in the tank they're pulling the fish out of before I give them my money. Seriously. 
Because if there's a whole bunch of freaking fish floating in there, I don't want any today. I'm just, and if, if they, well, I don't want you to do that. Well, I don't want to buy your freaking fish. I'm just saying. That's that's kind of my additional advice there. Um, but, I mean, catfish and bluegill are just a great uh, combination, especially in small ponds. Uh, I would say stock the shit out of it with minnows. Uh, from the same company, the first year that I bought stuff from them and everything made it, I bought a pound of fathead minnows. You almost could have walked across the surface of that pond this summer at their peak population. And what's great about that is, like, if you have an aquaponics system and you have fish in it that will eat minnows, like even tilapia eat a lot of vegetation, they'll eat minnows. Or you have catfish in your aquaponics system, you go down there with a net once a day, dip minnows in a bucket, dump them in your aquaponics system, feed them that. Now you're not buying feed. Minnows grow just fine on the algae, you know, so... Start thinking that way if you're doing other projects as well. Well, we're having a lot of variety today, so let's throw a gun question in here. This one comes from John. John says, I have a Ruger 380 LPC pistol with a built-in red laser. I like it because I carry it in my front pocket, have an extra clip on my belt. It's always there ready to go. It's inaccurate, but small. Should I move up to a bigger gun with more shots? If so, what do you suggest? In my current... Uh, is my current gun just a toy capable of little actual damage or is it small size worth it? Okay, well, you know, a lot of people say, well, yeah, 9mm is a fine carry gun, but a 380 isn't. I, I've looked at a, a, it was an informal study, but it was a pretty comprehensive study that was done. And the questions were, was the first shot lethal? And did the first shot incapacitate the individual? Uh, how many shots were necessary, et cetera? And, The, the differences between the 380 and the 9mm were very, very negligible, and in some ways the 380 actually, for some weird reason, performed better. Now, those were actual real-world shootings, whether it was a, a good guy shooting a bad guy or a bad guy shooting a bad guy or a bad guy shooting a good guy. It didn't matter. All the guy did was just go through everything he could find, every news story, whatever, and get the, the facts about it, and, and hundreds and hundreds of shootings. Uh, over uh, about a 10-year period and ranked all of and I can't probably, I, I don't have time to Google and try to track it down today, but somebody out there knows the study, send me a link, I'll append it later on to the, the show notes. Uh, maybe it's something I'll cover again because I, I talked about it several times a long, long time ago. And it's the, it's the only real-world examination that I've seen like that. You can shoot all kinds of shit into ballistic gelatin and, and what have you, but in the end, and then here was the big thing. I'm a big fan of the 45, as many of you know. I like putting big holes in things, especially things that are trying to kill me. I want the biggest hole I can get. But in the end, I had to admit the same thing. As far as handguns went, there wasn't much difference in the actual real world, won't call it stopping power, but stopping effect, first round, second round shot, lethality, etc., of any of them. None of them were that great. Including 357 Magnum, 44 Magnum, etc. Do you know what had an amazing stopping power? Rifles and shotguns. Yep, rifles and shotguns had really high numbers, and all of the handgun stuff was somewhat mediocre. Okay, you say it's not accurate. Accurate how? Um, in most defensive shooting situations, you're at point and shoot ranges. You know, you're not running and gunning and, 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 and doing swap reloads and, and shooting people 25 yards away and, 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 you know, taking out a, you know, a team of shooters or something like Steven Seagal or some shit like that. Is that guy still around? You know, you, but you know what I mean, right? 
Um, most defensive shooting situations occur either near your vehicle as you're returning your vehicle, as you're exiting a building, as you're going to enter a building in some place where you had to get out of view, or in your own home, or in your vehicle as you're trying to exit it. Or you're, you're, you, it's always these close situations. So I don't think accuracy is anywhere near as important as people make it out to be, you know, as how accurate is this thing at 20 yards? Because if, you, if you're shooting somebody at 20 yards, you got two situations. One, you were in the right place at the right time to stop a mass shooting. Okay? Two, you have other options. It's one or the other. Right? Somebody 20 yards away from you, you have other options other than shooting them. Most, not all, most of the time. I'm talking 90 percentile more here. So here's my view. If I said, no, no, you know what you need to do? You need to go out and get a really nice compact 45 like I carry. And you need to get this holster and carry it this way. And you, and you say, well, I don't have any money to do that. Or, you know, I have other things I'd like to do with that money. So now I'm just going to not carry my small gun. Well, then when you get killed and you could have defended yourself, I'm going to feel pretty bad, aren't I? Or when I tell you to do that and you go out and you get it and you like it, but you don't like it as much. So there's times when you were going to carry, you just don't carry. There is no time when I would be in a situation where lethal force is required, where my choice was I can have this little 380 compact Ruger immediately accessible to me, or I can have no gun at all, where I would say I'd rather have no gun at all. Because I can choose not to use the gun. There's times where... You might even be in a situation where lethal force is warranted, but you don't have time to get your gun no matter where it is. You have to use a martial level of defense at least to buy yourself time to access the firearm. And I think that's, that's, that's something that I don't think is in enough training, uh, self-defense training with weapons, is if you look at stuff like the tooler drill, When a guy comes running at you with a knife, you know, at 21 feet and gets the guy first. Do you know, the, they do at least have started to teach people, well, move while you draw. But the number one reason that people lose in the 21-foot drill is they immediately go for their gun instead of move. I mean, some guy's just running at you with a knife from 21 feet away. Friggin' run. Just start running as fast as you can the other direction. He's got a knife, not a gun. Draw your gun while you're running. Take cover, turn around and shoot the son of a bitch. Right? You know? And that's not always the right decision, but at least have it as an option in your head. Real men don't run from a fight. Yeah, they do. That's what moving off the X is. But I'm defending myself as I I understand, but you're still running. That's why I call it running and gunning. So I, I'll let that go. But I have no problem with your choice of a carry gun. If you feel you want to move up in size and lethality, I don't have a problem with that either. But you need to understand why you're doing it. And to me, you're doing it for that potential where not so much you're defending yourself from somebody immediately in front of you. Because I promise you, if you put four 380s in somebody's face, you're going to change their whole attitude. But you're sitting down. You're having a meal with your wife. Some maniac walks in with a, you know, an AK-47 and starts randomly shooting people. Fortunately for you, he's shooting people in the other direction. You have a 25-yard shot and you have a guy that when you hit him, he's going to turn around and start shooting at you. 
that larger gun, more accurate at distance, higher rate of fire, etc., pays off that day. What are the odds? Understanding that the odds, the, see, this is the thing. Like, I think to be honest with ourselves as, as, as Second Amendment advocates, right to carry advocates, we have to be honest about the whole picture. The odds that I'll ever draw my weapon in anger are very, very low anyway, in any situation, even without discharging it. Like, we had a guy wrote in, three guys sitting on the hood of his car under an overpass in a kind of idle, deserted area, waiting on him to come back. Basically, they're going to roll him and take whatever they can get out of him. Maybe they're going to get his keys and take his car. Who knows? Drew his weapon and said, I don't think we're going to do this today. And they left. Okay. That's a weapon saving a life or at least saving body and property. But never happened to me. Only person I know sent me a story like that, that one guy. Talked to hundreds of thousands of people through the microphone every day. Heard other stories of armed self-defense. Yeah, but I mean... Relatively few compared to the total number, so it's already low. The odds that the, 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 the mass shooter situation is going to happen are infinitesimally low compared to that. But the original odds are low, and I carry anyway. So when I think about carrying a little bit more effective of a weapon, that's why I'm doing it. But there would be situations where it's just not comfortable, it's just not convenient, and going to a subcompact, I don't have a problem with it. And anybody that does, I don't know that they're really thinking or they're really basing their their views on reality. Um, next question comes from Stephen Harris. Stephen Harris is asking me a question about ducks. Uh, Steve says, I have a question that I think is worthy of being on the Duck Chronicles. Well, I'll probably talk about it as we uh, move into Season three, which will start around February 8th, uh, when the new Walsh Harlequins and all the other ducks get here. Um, but... I'm going to answer it on the air, too, because it's a completely valid question. So if you have a bird that will lay 250 eggs a year for three years at $8.50 a dozen, that's $8 a dozen, but your point's still valid, Steve, she's worth about $500 in eggs, life gross. It's actually more than that um, because they'll lay into a fourth and fifth season. Uh, but, yes, your, your point is valid. So you would would you just not sell a why, So you would not just sell a duck while she's producing? If she's a Welsh Harlequin and you want to sell her for her beauty to a nice home with a pond, the question is, how do you know when the duck has stopped laying? How can you tell? How do you know when to call one duck from the flock or 200 for meat or for sale when she is out of ovums? Steve, okay, so if we actually ran our farms like conventional farms where we had birds in cages and we actually kept a count, we could actually know when a, you know how many ovums are left. Because we know a duck starts with 1,500, and when she passes, let's say, 1,000, she's down to 500. There's no way to do that in a, in a, you know, a, a, a natural, sustainable farm. There's no way to know this duck laid that egg every day. Um, what we do know is patterns, and we make all of our decisions on patterns. And the pattern is a duck lays really well for about three seasons, and in her fourth year, her production declines dramatically, But it's still better than a chicken generally is in their second to third year. So we can get a fourth season. And after that, we have a rather expensive pet. So what we want to do then is we either buy specific breeds or specific ducks or ducks that have certain characteristics that change, like your black ducks will turn white as they age, if you know that. And when your duck is really salt and pepper, she's an older duck, and it might be time for her to graduate to Duck Sausage University. So 
what we're doing then is we're going to want to cull birds at about four years of age. About four years of age uh, if we are in the business of eggs production. Now, generally, the person that has the pond that wants a bunch of pretty ducks on it or something like that or wants to go into their own business is not looking for an animal that's worn out. They're actually pretty hard to rehome, and they'd be very difficult to sell for any kind of a commanding price. So we're not talking about selling a four-year-old Welsh Harlequin. We're talking about having Welsh Harlequin eggs hatch, raise those ducklings up to, you know, when they just start to put their feathers on so that they're a well-started duckling or selling them straight out of the, you know, while they're still in a brooder, depending on who you're selling them to, uh, and, and sell them for 12, 15 bucks a bird because you can't get them anywhere else. And a lot of people don't want to have them shipped or they only want four or five. And so why would I do that versus raise that duck for egg profit? Well, first of all, the biggest reason is what we'd call stocking density. My property can support 150 to 200 ducks. It cannot support 300 or 500 or 1,000 ducks. This means with simple reproduction strategy, I can produce more ducks than I can actually provide resources for. I also, even though we do really well at selling our eggs, and this time of year we're always short on eggs, we're always short on supply, we have gotten into situations where we have more eggs than we can sell. So there's, there's an upward limit of how big I want my flock to be and how many eggs we want to produce based on the customer size we can serve. We, we have a, a limit there as well. So a way to put more revenue in the pool is to sell the duck before it incurs its feed, duck, feed debt. So when my ducks lay their first egg, I have about $40 worth of food into them. And they're going to continue to eat while they produce those eggs, and they're going to have to produce quite a few dozen eggs before we're par, and at that point they're profitable, and they're profitable against the only main expenses feed, and they remain profitable for about three years, and they still are, you know, if there's not that many of them in the flock, if the flock's weighted to young ducks, a few of them are older and let them have like some kind of semi-retirement is okay. And then when we do decide we need to pull a few out, we just select our older birds. And when you get an eye for it, you can just look and go, that bird's at least four years old. So you know, okay, those are birds we'll, 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 pull, we'll pull out. They just, they just look older, just like people do. It's not as obvious, but if you know what to look for, you, you see it. So we're selling those birds because we, we can make money with them, and we do very little work for that money. Yes, I can make $500 off a duck over her lifetime. Sure. But every day I have to go pick that egg up, we have to wash that egg, we have to put that egg in a cart, and we have to sell that egg. Well, I can take 30 eggs that I know what they were harnessed for, or uh, know where they came from, and I can pre-sell. I'm going to have Welsh Harlequin ducklings pre-order years now. And I can hatch that duckling, and I, I can have that duckling in a brooder box for a couple days at most, And my customer comes over and looks in and goes, yeah, I want, I want five of them, six of them, whatever. Okay, here, they're, they're, they're $12 a piece. 60 bucks, buy. 60 bucks just went in my pocket. That's about two and a half bags of feed. Now, I don't have that expense for the next two and a half days against my flock. I've just deferred that expense. I just had a, a customer for an un, for, for a non-direct sale. Pay for the feed for, I do that twice, I just paid my feed bill for a week. I do that ten times a year, 
10 weeks of my feed expenses gone. Now I can be a little bit nicer to that four-year-old duck that's been a good duck to me and maybe give her another year to live before she turns into sausage, especially since the meat yield on purpose-built layered ducks is so low. That's why we do that. Another source of income and little work for it, very little work. And if we can get our Muscovies doing their job right and we can pop all those known eggs on the same day underneath that broody Muscovy and she does everything, including raise those ducks... Well, we can just sell them off as people want to buy them. And as they get older, we can say definitely that's a hen, that's a drake. We can charge even more money for known sexes and for an older bird. Now we can sell that bird for $20, $25. Not a hundred of them. Five here, ten there. All that little bit of money sort of starts to add up over time. I'm just saying that you don't, you know, whip out traveler's checks to buy five ducks. And you can take that information and Sort it out for yourself. Next one here from Randy. Randy says, A thought from episode 1931. You discussed your thoughts regarding universal health care. In that discussion, I believe you said you think there will be a public option, Medicare, Medicaid, and a private option. I agree. But I think there may be one more aspect you didn't mention. I don't think you mentioned it anyway. I believe there will be a gov- there will still be a government subsidy similar to Obamacare subsidy, tax credit, shell game. In other words, based on your income, GovCo will offer you a stipend and pay directly to the insurance provider of your choice. The stipend will be such that if your income is low enough, you will be able to purchase cheap entry-level insurance using the subsidy. That's one way to do it. I don't think they will because what's the end game? So whenever you're looking at what government's going to do, you don't say, well, how would it best serve the people? Because that's not what they do. They serve their own end game. And the end game in government is for government to control everything. So if government provides money that goes to Corporation ABC to provide a service in the form of a subsidy, that gives government some control. But what government can't control then is how much the company charges. They, they, they can't say, well, you have to charge this much or that much. They can try, but it doesn't usually work out well. If they want total control, it's better that they have it directly. So what I believe the government is going to do is go into competition against the private sector and eventually put the private sector out of business because the government can just print more money whenever it has a loss and the private companies can't do it. Um, it's the only way to deliver what Trump promised. And it will make Republicans happy because the big corporations will get really, really wealthy on it for a while. It'll make Democrats happy because they'll get their public option. Again, some Madison Avenue term firm will call it something else. But but I will I will acknowledge that Randy's right. This could be the way that it plays out. It, it will be another Obamacare if it does, a design to fail. Eventually, see, the stipend will be up to a certain amount of money, and eventually the delta will outstrip the, the cost. It won't be we'll pay 70% of your bill, right, uh, or all but 50 bucks. It will be we'll give you this much money. And it might go up a little every year, but the, the pace of the insurance will out, outpace it. The truth is, for insurance to do what people have been convinced that it's supposed to do, the only way it can do it, albeit poorly, is government health care. See, 
I want you to think about, because I always make the comparison with pre-existing conditions to, to auto insurance. It's not an apples-to-apples apples comparison, right? It's, it's like an apples-to-turnips comparison uh, there. So we, we won't go down that path. But there is another way to look at that. I'm driving my car down the road, and uh, a guy in front of me hits a little pebble. It flies up in the air, and it chips my paint. And I take it down to the dealership and say, can you guys buff this out, do whatever. And they go, yeah, that's about 100 bucks. I don't go to my insurance company because my deductible is $500 to $1,000 for stuff like that. I pay for it. They fix it. I go on my way. I have, I have no expectation that that little chip is going to be covered by my insurance company if I have a brain. But more to the point, I look at my odometer. Gee, I'm close to when that sticker on my window they put there last time says I need my oil changed. I go down to the dealership or a quick car or whatever and say, I need an oil change. And they say, okay. Then I'll say, what's your insurance provider's name? Fill out this form to tell us about the allergies your car has. Right? They say, well, that'll be uh, $29.95. If you want our special 18-point additional process, it'll be $41 or whatever it is. You say, okay, I'll take that. They do the work, you pay them, you go on about your way. There's no expectation that your auto insurance is going to pay for your oil change or your timing belt, or things like that. Now, you can add a extended warranty, or something like that, and there's still things it doesn't cover on your car. Okay? But in general, even those things, you know, it's not going to cover every time you need anything done. If, if you need to add some uh, gas treatment, you don't have a copay of $4, and get your, your $12 worth of gas treatment for $4. Well... They made insurance almost that way, and people thought it was good, and people thought it was great. And I remember having insurance when I when I was an employee at my first like real job, my first big job, and, and I remember having that insurance, and I remember being able to go to the doctor, and my copay was ten dollars to go to a regular doctor's appointment, okay, and then I got my prescription, and it was like. $40 worth of medicine, and I had a cope. It was two different medicines. I had a copay of four bucks a piece. It was eight bucks. So for 18 bucks, I went to the doctor and I got this prescription. It was a $40 prescription. And a doctor's appointment out of pocket would have been about $75. I was a young guy, and you think I'd be like, woohoo, this is great. You know what I thought immediately? Oh, this is not going to work. This can't. And I remember talking to people, oh, oh you'll understand someday. Well, yeah, you will too, won't you? And that type of insurance led to a mentality that's what insurance should be. And then we tried to make that, and it began to catastrophically fail. So the companies began cutting benefits and raising prices simultaneously. Then the government got in and said, you can't do this. So they did more of it anyway. The government said, you can't do these things. So it did everything else that it could, including jacking prices up to shit. So now we have a public that wants have insurance where it's cheap to go to the doctor, it's cheap to get your medications, uh, and, and you won't go bankrupt if you need a liver transplant. You can have one or the other, but not both. But if you want both, albeit poorly, the only way you can do it is with a state-run insurance program. It's the only way you can do it. And, and, and so that's their goal. It's what they're going to do. One way or another, by hook or by crick, they're going to do it. Okay, now time for and I'm not going to play the music today because I, I don't feel like digging the soundbite out, but Jack was wrong. I haven't talked about this a lot, and I have not 
sufficiently heard enough information like this about Edward Snowden to train my, change my opinion about Snowden, I still think Snowden was a hero. I never thought Bradley slash Chelsea Manning was a hero. Never. I did think that where people, this should be executed, hung from the highest building, thrown off a building, set on fire, murdered. God, you think I'm kidding, right? Recently in a, in a, in a Facebook thread, there were people saying, because they're, she's, uh, Chelsea, he, she, shim, whatever's being released from, from prison. Obama commuted, uh, the sentence. Better hope I don't see him. Yeah. Better hope I don't see him. I'll kill him. Right. Flat out threats. I would kill this person if I saw them. And I said, uh, and you're always, cost American lives, cost American lives, cost American lives. On and on and on and on. So I posted in this thread over and over and over again. For me to buy any of this, I need you to post the following. This document was released, link, because it's all public now anyway. There's no reason not to, because it's all public. It's all been released. Here is how that specifically risked or cost American lives. Because most of what I've seen is things like, we were spying on Iceland. Oh, and by the way, we also have to have been right and just in what we were doing in this particular instance. So if it's an inflamed rage because we were abusing prisoners of war or something like that, yeah, I feel bad that that caused that to happen, but yeah, we shouldn't have been doing that either. And on and on, I was, I was called gay because Chelsea's a transsexual or whatever. I don't know how these two things are related, but whatever. Insulted and, 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 and called a commie and all this other shit. And constant calls for this person's death. I've had about enough of death. And I'm still not for this person's death. But 38 years of prison seemed excessive to me, given the nature of some of the things we did learn that our government was lying to about from the leaks that came from the Manning files. All of these people continuously bashing the shit out of it. Not one person can give me a specific. And again, remember, I'm sure there's some... In fact, I've learned since now, there are some things that people really can't say publicly, even though it is public, because they are bound. But if, they're, if it's as bad as you say, there has to be something. Out of nowhere, our own Tim Glantz shows up in that Facebook thread and writes the following. If you want a specific example of information Manning released that was of zero whistleblower value, but could only serve to harm U.S. forces, he leaked specific frequencies that our IED jamming equipment was capable of operating on. I mean the exact upper and lower limits for each type. Those devices worked well because the enemy didn't know those limits and was having to learn them the hard way on what worked and what didn't. When you're having to do trial and error against guys who will do their best to kill you, if your shit doesn't detonate, that's a difficult process of learning curve. But as soon as the information got out, as to what the frequency limits of them were, the enemy switched frequencies. Or when they knew their equipment could go into in a range the jammers didn't work, they switched over to the other means of initiation. Now, can anyone say this person got blown up on this day specifically because Manning let the enemy know how to change tactics? Of course not. The enemy never left a thanks Bradley card at the scene, of, and that's a ridiculous standard to demand for proof. I agree, by the way. But what can be said is there's no whistleblowing value releasing that information at all, and what can be said is after it was leaked, we saw a rapid change in enemy tactics and made their IEDs more effective. 
There can be only two explanations for dumping that specific data. Either he specifically wanted to dump information the enemy could use to better kill Americans, or he was mindlessly and carelessly gathering everything he could to dump without regard for what it was. Neither seems to meet, meet the definition of whistleblower. I would believe it's the second one. Just carelessly and not looking for things of specific value that were useful. I am more pissed about this than most having ridden around with those devices, uh, part of what we counted on to let us find and get rid of IEDs instead of them blowing us up and having had some of my guys blown up by IEDs after his leak. Can I say for sure on route clearance operations before the leaks, we recovered radio detonated IDs that didn't detonate, that used frequencies covered by our ECM equipment? Yes. Can I say for sure leaking the data is what caused those IEDs that blew up by our deployed guys to be detonated successfully by the enemy in which specific case afterward? No, since you could never say anything with 100% certainty. But I can say for sure it made a lot easier for them to do it. Yes, I can. And? See, this is where I'm different than most people. If I ask for something specific and say, this would change my opinion, and someone's able to go out and get it and provide it in a legitimate way with proof points, and this was, Tim said I'm completely comfortable saying all this because it was published in a Wired Magazine article, so it is completely public. Fine. Well, it was published a long time ago. It was published a long time ago. So my opinion is Bradley, Chelsea, whatever the hell Manning should probably be in prison for the full term of the sentence and the ass clown Obama circumvented justice by pardoning Bradley, Chelsea, whatever, she, he, shim, it, z, out of the prison. And I, I believe it may have been some pandering to the LBGQT. I don't know why all those people think they're part of the same community, honestly, but whatever, that, that that's, you know, that that's what that is. I don't really know what Obama's motivations were there, um, but it would seem with that knowledge that if I were president and somebody said, well, you can mute this person's sentence, no. No. Because I think it's legitimate to say there are probably people dead or injured today that would not be if this had not happened. And in that particular instance, we're talking about IEDs. We're not talking about you know something we were doing we shouldn't have been doing. And I know there's a pure slave. We shouldn't be in these wars anyway. But we are. But we are. And and when you look at the disfigured American soldiers that come home, or come home in pieces, and you realize that this made it worse, yeah. Call for their death? No, because I think that the presumption that you're going to execute somebody, first of all, at the state level, means you trust the state with, with making that decision. And I don't. I don't trust the state with a lot of things, but I really don't trust them with the ability to take the life of one of their citizens. That always ends badly. There's always abuses. And I am, I am no longer for the de- I am for the use of lethal force, but I'm not u- for the use of the death penalty at this point in my life and how many abuses I've seen of it. Uh, and you can't specifically say there was a, a motivation to cost lives which is a standard for the death penalty in a death penalty case. I know it's a different military court, but I don't know that it should be. I have a problem with things like shooting people because they didn't charge the enemy when you told them to, which militaries all over the world have done at different times. Hey, but prison, yeah, yeah. Because if all you were concerned with was telling the American people the truth, then you could have combed the data for the things like that and specifically released that. Now, no one's been able to give me something as specific as this on Edward Snowden. So my stance on Edward Snowden remains what it is. I think the guy 
is an American hero that cost himself a brilliant career, making lots of money, and when you tell me he should have went through the right channels, I'll tell you he tried, and he and his girlfriend were threatened by our own people to shut up, or something bad might happen to you. So I have a different opinion to that. But my big thing, all of these people clamoring, kill them, kill them, kill them, you're calling to kill somebody. You didn't know what I just said. You didn't know what I just said. You couldn't give me a specific example. I've been asking for years. No examples. Now, I've heard from a couple other people behind the scenes that says, here, I'll give you an example, but you can't talk about this because my name's involved with it. And I have an NDA. I can't, I can't publicly release this information. And it's even worse. I can be a confi- I can have confidential sources and I can just say, listen, I, I can't explain it publicly, but I'll tell you that, but until, until this moment, I hear all of these clamoring for death and blood. And I think to myself, isn't that how we got into all this shit in the first place? I'm weary of death. I'm weary of war. I want to know why we're in all these countries killing these people. They hate us. Well, if you blew up my kids, I'd hate you too. But in the end, there is certain realities on the ground. There are certain realities on the ground. And my opinion is totally different here. But I think the majority of people calling for the death of somebody like this, you're saying it because the TV told you to. And if you're a logical, sane, rational person, and you're making a decision, do you think this person should be alive or dead? Should they walk free or be in prison? And you don't have any specifics. You're running on emotion. And frankly, I'm not going to say you're an idiot, but you're behaving like an effing moronic idiot. And the majority of people calling for the death of traitors and stuff like that, they have no idea why. And even some people that lost people overseas or whatever, uh, or had a, a brother, and they, but they're saying like, This person's dead because of them. Well, you don't know that. You don't know that. And you're being emotional instead of logical. That's how most of the problems in the world start. Okay, next question. Gun, another gun question. Uh, I had a question last week. Guy said he was at a gun show, really good deal on an AR, but it was in a 223 Wild. And he didn't know anything about the Wild, so he didn't know whether to buy it or not. So... Here's, here's the deal with the, the 223 Wild of what it actually is. You can fire 223 civilian ammo safely and effectively in a 5.56 military spec chamber. And you can fire 5.56 military uh, ammo in there as well. Okay? I'm not going to get into all the technicals on this case dimensions and thickness and pressures and why. Just understand that 223 and 5.56 can go in a 5.56 chamber. Okay? And the chamber tolerance is greater. The throat's a little longer in the 5.56 chamber. 2.23 upper, specifically a sporting upper made to fire non-military 2.23 ammo. The chamber, the throat length actually is, is shorter and the tolerance is tighter. And that's why the higher pressure, thicker brass case of the 5.56 should not go in there. It can cause dangerous problems. What happens though is we take the 223 ammo that's a lot of the like really high end target ammo and stuff like that. We put it into the 556 chamber and say, why not just run that? Well, generally speaking, it's not as accurate as it could be in a tighter tolerance chamber, which makes perfect sense if you think about it. 
Higher tolerances, greater repeatability, better accuracy. This is why fire forming brass and neck sizing only is the best way to load highly accurate ammunition. Fire the ammo in a gun, specifically like your bolt actions and stuff like that. You fire the ammo in a gun. That, that, that brass is now married to that gun. When you reload it, you only resize the neck, and you have a perfectly custom-fit cartridge into that chamber because the pressure has expanded it to fit that chamber perfectly. Right? So it's not the same thing, but it's a good way to think about it. So what people wanted was something that can fire military rounds and also fire .223 and have less accuracy issues. And the .223 while basically is it's in the middle. It's got a longer throat than the five, the .223 and a shorter throat than the .556, but it's sufficient that it's safe to fire the military ammo, and tighter enough on tolerance that generally it's more accurate than a pure 5.56 upper. That's it. It's trying to please both worlds, and it does a pretty good job of it, and there's nothing wrong with it. And if you want to shoot both ammos, your choices are the while or the 5.56. If you want to shoot the most accurate um, civilian ammo, results then you want a 223 up which almost nobody does i don't think it's that big a deal unless you're doing really high-end target competitions or something like that um i'm always happy just with a plain old 556 upper but i would not buy a while if i could get a good deal on it okay so that's it um 742 remington was the other part of his question he said he, he saw a really good deal on one at a gun shop or not a gun, a gun show And, you know, he's thinking about his buddy, so they're Jam-O-Matics. It's the 742 uh, Remington. So you got the 742, you got the 740, you got the 750, you got the 7400. Uh, I'm probably missing something in there in semi-auto sporting Remington rifles made from the 50s all the way up till still today. Uh, various numbers and flavors, but they're pretty much the same gun. The answer is yes, they have real jamming problems, and that could be a good thing. If you're the kind of person that's willing to do what Remington should have done in the first place to make them shoot right. Because they do have these jamming problems. A lot of people get rid of them. And they get rid of them cheap. And then the next person gets it cheap. And then they get rid of Like, so, instead a gun sells for $700 new and was bought a long time ago. The guy's always had jam problems with it. He finally wants to get rid of it. He goes to a place. He gets $400 for it. That guy wants to make quick money. He sells it for $500. The guy that pays $500 for it hates it goes and dumps it off somewhere else. He'll take 300 for it, and he just keeps working the price down. And a lot of the times you can find these guns now not even heavily used for $300, $350 for a semi-auto 3006 or 270 or 308 or something. That's a pretty good deal. Okay, there's, there's two main culprits with jamming in all of these flavors of Remingtons. One is the magazines. People load the magazines. They keep them loaded. The magazine spring in these, and it's the same with the 760, the pump actions, and the 7600, it's the same magazine. They have a really weak steel spring in that magazine. And what will happen is the, the weapon will cycle, and even if it ejects your round, it won't pick up the next round, or it won't pick it up properly, one or the other. And so the solution there is make sure you take good care of your magazines, keep them clean, stretch the spring out once in a while, and only load them when you're going to shoot the gun. Don't keep preloaded magazines ready to go with them. 
They're a sporting round. You know, they hold four rounds in there. They're for shooting a deer. You know, they're not for something you're going to be doing mag swaps and fighting Red Dawn with. They're just not for that. Even though you wouldn't be doing that anyway, that's not what you, it's not the gun you want for that. So that's one. Now, if the jam is actually in the functioning of the mechanism itself, in other words, it's failing to eject, there's, it's way too complicated to explain. I have a link in the show notes to a forum thread that explains modifications that are, are done by, you know, armchair gunsmiths all the time. And most people, once they make these modifications and they're not that complicated, the gun functions flawlessly. They have no problems with it. So you got a semi-automatic 306 you can get for $300. Make a few modifications. Don't cost any money to do, by the way. That's why I said it could be a good thing. Because you can, you can then partake in a good deal on a gun, you know, and, and, and get a good deal on a gun because no one else will do the work. So that's, That's my thoughts on that. Overall, you know, there's something that looks almost just like the 7400s, except it's got a cooler-looking receiver. It's made by Browning, Browning Bar for Browning Automatic Rifle. They make them at 306. They cost more. They're worth it. If I was, if I was in the market for a sporting rifle semi-auto, that I really wanted to rely on. Because I, I always look for 750, 742s, 7400s at gun shows. I look for stupid, cheap deals on them. Because I, I, you know, good deal on it, I mean, fine. But like, if I wanted, like, if I was like, I'm going to go to this as my hunting arm, I'd go with the Browning Bar. I'd just spend the extra money and go with the Browning Bar. All right, last question today. This comes from uh, Kiwi Will. Says, hi, I've just started really getting into your podcast and I've always had an itch for homesteading kind of life. However, I did the standard thing of going to night schools and then going to university and now I am at graduate accounting job and I feel like I just got thrown into the wind and never tried to land. I'm emailing because I'd like your advice on how to start. I'm a graduate of New Zealand who doesn't have much money as I only have just entered the workforce. Is there anything I can do, minimal capital, to start heading towards a more sustainable lifestyle? With several income streams and a happier outlook, Love your work. I would love to listen. Uh, I, I, even if you, even if your politic chat doesn't affect me as much as it does the majority of your audience, thank you for any kind of reply or inspiration. I'm trying to teach, my, trying to research myself as much as I can, but I keep getting stuck in how to get out of the wind. Kiwi will. All right. Well, well. First of all, I just want to point out with the politic thing, just real quick, that the whole point of what I talk about with politics is the state seeks to control you, and you need to figure out ways to not be controlled. That affects us all universally, no matter what country we live in. And yours may be more than mine, because your country is a, 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 a larger bureaucracy per individual than mine is. Anyway, um, so the, the short answer is what you need to do now is you have a skill set and probably loan debt, and you have a decent starting job, and you need to work your ass off in your field and make some money and pay off your debt and get yourself into a financially better situation. That doesn't sound fun. Well, you know, you went to school and you acquired the debt, and uh, now you have you, you you don't have much after all of that time, and your shortest path to some level of financial stability is that. If you really don't want to do it and you just want to go off the reservation, I'm not going to stop you. I'm telling you what what I would do in your situation. There's 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 an old saying that seems to apply here from kind of left field. My dad was fond of this saying, and it was. Life is like a shit sandwich sometimes. The more bread you got, the less shit you got to eat. 
Of course, bread is slang for money, right? So that seems like you're, you know, because if you're going to homestead, you got to have a home to stead. So you, you have to figure out how to get yourself into, you know, uh, a, a rental house with a yard or, uh, you know, you're buying your first home or something like that. And you don't want to buy outside of your means and you probably aren't ready to buy just now. But, you know, you, you, you need to, to, to figure out what your path looks like. Because I, I can't tell you how to do this for free, you know. Um, if there's some opportunity like that, then you can take that. But I don't know what your opportunities are. You know, I, 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 if you wanted to kind of do the woofer thing, and I don't know what they call that, if they call I'm sure they call it the same because worldwide opportunities on organic farms, you want to go learn how to farm. You can travel around and sleep in barns and on, 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 you know, in, in lofts and barns and stuff like that for uh, a few months and not have a job and, and work for room and board in a, a small stipend here and there. And you could investigate that if, if that's what you want to do. But is that what you want to do? I wouldn't. I mean, when I was 19, or let's see, 19, I was still in the army. So when I got out of the army, I was 21 years old. Um, if somebody had explained, and if I didn't even know if they had it yet, but if they would have, if I would have been told what wolfing was, I would have went and done that. But you know what I had? No debt and a big pocket full of money. Not a big pocket full, but I had a significant amount of money because, you know, my room, my board, my food, everything was paid for for three years. Six months in Honduras, I had no place to spend my money. So I had some cash and I didn't have any debt. But if you have school debt, you got to deal with it. There's, there's no way around that. But if you can get any kind of little place to start doing stuff, there's a lot of things you can do that are practically free. You know, learn the vermicompost. Get a worm bin. You're eating, so start dealing with your own waste. That's that's a part of building soil. That's a huge part of homesteading. If you're going to grow your own food, you learn to grow soil first, and then soil grows food. Now, there's a lot of inexpensive things that you can do. You know, recycling, Learning how, work, focusing on the skills and the knowledge. There's tons of information out there to go learn. And then you say to yourself, how can I do this? You know, can you find somebody's backyard to spin farm? It's probably more popular in New Zealand than it is here. And there's people doing it here making a decent amount of money. And then this isn't going to directly help you much, but this is something I want to try to use to, to be a teachable moment for people that think I'm too hard on the current education system. Your problem is that you figured out what you really wanted after you were so vested in the education system financially and time-wise. This is why you feel like you're flapping in the wind. I spent all this time. I spent all this money. I have all this debt. I have almost nothing to show for it. And now I have a job. It's not really what I want. My suggestion that people not just all go to college is more about why don't you figure out what you want And if what you want means go to college, then go to college. But if what you want can be better acquired without going to college, don't go to college. If it's a trade school thing, do that. If it's a service-oriented thing, Peace Corps, military, whatever, do that. Because I think you have to have a college degree to do Peace Corps now, which is just freaking dumb. right? But there's other ways to, to do service-oriented things where you learn skills. Figure out what you want before you go invest in something you don't want. My One of my best friends from the military, his ex-wife, went to school to be an architect. Why? Her dad was an architect, and they had a great life, and he made lots of money. So I'm going to be an architect like daddy. Last I heard, she was designing closets with CAD. I'm sure her architectural degree um, 
help, you know, the knowledge he has in art helps with like using CAD and designing closets and stuff like that. I, I'm sure, but one does not need an architect's degree to, to, uh, to design closets. And my understanding is she's where she is. She's not getting the experience and the the internship and apprentice, whatever you want to call it. Like architects are kind of like doctors. You you don't go just get a degree and be an architect. You have to work under an architect for a certain amount of time, and then you get you know a, you become a certified architect. She has no path toward that. She doesn't care because she doesn't like it anymore. It's an expensive lesson. So I don't know what to tell you to do in your life this way. It's like this is one of these questions where I say, I'm not Yoda. But what you have to do now is what everybody has to do. Figure out what you can do. Figure out what you want to do. Figure out where you want to be in a year and two and five and so on. And then you have to develop a path to get there. I'll put it to you like this. Every day across this world, ships leave ports. They travel thousands of miles. They arrive not just where they were supposed to arrive, but within moments of when they were supposed to get there. And that's because before they leave, the captain plots the course for the ship. It's no mystery that that's how it works. And as he's trawling along on his course, if he gets too far ahead of schedule, if that's going to create a problem at wherever port he's going to, because there won't be a place for him to be, he'll slow down. Or if he's behind, he'll speed up. If there's a weather event, He'll go around it. If it gets to a point where I'm not going to get there on time, he'll radio ahead to the port and say, we're going to be delayed so they can adjust and accommodate his arrival. But all along the way, there's a plan, there's a destination, and there's continuous correction as the ship travels. So nobody goes, holy shit, how did this thing end up, you know, here? How did, how did this, this ship end up San Diego Harbor From Japan. Damn, it's impossible. They're like, well, of course it did. Because the captain brought it there. That's your life. And sometimes you can realize that you were going to the wrong port. You're way off course. The wind's blowing really, really hard. And what you want is to have a, a reset button, a do-over, a mulligan. Just, just somebody make it go away. You are where you are. But you're still captain of the ship. So what you have to do is have to grab onto it, chart a new course, and realize if you're far enough off course, it's going to take a long time and a lot of sacrifice to get back onto the course you want to be on. So two things there. One, get working on it. But two, make sure it's not just some something that tricks your fancy and like, like six months from now you're going to want something else. We don't spend as a culture damn near enough time figuring out what we really want. We're told by society what we're supposed to be, and then we try to emulate that. That's that's probably the biggest problem with higher education in America today. The motivation as to why people are pursuing it is completely blind. And trusting in a system that the world of the words of George Carlin threw you overboard decades ago. So we'll figure out what you want. And go after it. But don't be afraid to use the skills that you've acquired. You've spent so much of your time to be able to do it. Your skill is in accounting. It's in, it's in finance. It's in economics. And you're asking me how to get by with limited capital. If you actually learned what they said they taught you, 
You should be the one teaching me how to get by with limited capital by understanding how to leverage financial resources better than I do. Just saying. With that, if you enjoyed today's show, consider supporting the Member Support Brigade. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service, or first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of you do qualify for a discount. Email me before, not after you join. Put TSPC service discount in the subject line and uh, tell me about your service in one or two sentences. I'll give you that discount code. Everybody else, it's a great deal. Remember, if you want to come to the TSP uh, workshop, if you're not MSB, you're probably not going to get to come. Just saying, because you're not going to get a chance to buy the tickets. Um, that's just one more you know, kind of thing I do extra for MSB members, because you support me, and therefore I try to support you back. Uh, next up, the other way you can support me is by doing your shopping through the Amazon uh, portal that I've set up called tspaz.com. You just go to tspaz.com, click a link, you're on Amazon, you buy your stuff, you supported the show, you didn't buy anything you weren't going to buy anyway, and you didn't spend money you weren't going to spend anyway, and you didn't spend more money, right? So that's 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 that. Uh, today's item of the day for the Amazon item of the day at TSPAS is another solution for those of you that want to do your own fermenting at home. I had a uh, product that I uh, talked about about two months ago uh, called Fermentum mason jar lids, and they're a great waterless lock, and I put those out, and pff, a lot of you bought them. I'm not saying it's all me, but they haven't been available for over a month. And I had people saying, I, I want to get into this, and I like this idea of small scale doing it mason jars. Can you recommend another product? And I don't just pick one and throw it up there. So I did a lot of research, and I finally settled on a product called Mason Tops. And these are made with silicon, and they call them pickle pipes. And it's a little silicon top. You stick it on your mason jar, you screw your ring on the jar. And it almost looks like a baby bottle. It's a one-way air valve. And CO2 can get out, and oxygen can't get in. It's foolproof. It never goes bad. It never wears out. It's dishwasher safe. And the product I have up is those, but it's in a kit where you can get the whole thing. It comes with four of those. It comes with four what they're calling pickling pebbles, which are basically glass weights. Quite a few different people make different versions of those. And it comes with a um, with a with a uh, a packer for like making your krauts and stuff like that. Whole thing sells for I think like forty five bucks or something, fifty four bucks, something like that. Uh, and you can buy any of the parts individually or in pairs. You can buy just the tops. You can buy the tops and the pebbles if you don't need the packer or what have you. Because um, honestly, you know what works really good as a packer? Uh, if you have a rolling pin that doesn't have handles, like the ones that are just a solid piece of wood, they're a great packer. Um, so you maybe not, if you don't make, you know, crafts, you don't need a packer. So you have your choice as to how you buy them. But I just think they're a fantastic product. And I'm going to be doing, like I've said earlier uh, in, in the year, more and more stuff with lacto-fermentation uh, this year that will be on the YouTube channel. And if you get your stuff, you can follow along and try recipes with me. Today I, uh, I showed this kit in a little video that's out on YouTube, and it is embedded in the post. And I showed a couple of ferments I got one right now. I got some fermented garlic and black peppercorns and some fermented jalapenos going right now. So check it out, tspaz.com. Remember, right over to Amazon with the one click, and the next click will just pull up the most recent reviews uh, as well for you. So you can see the reviews and the YouTube videos and all that good stuff. Because remember, the stuff that I recommend on T-Spaz is not random shit that I pick that I think you'll buy. It's stuff that I use in my own life or that I've used that other people have you know showed to me and things like that. I'd say nine times out of ten, the item is an item that I'm currently using in my home. Tspaz.com, another way that we try to serve you and provide education and information for that self-sufficient lifestyle. With that, let's go ahead and talk about our song of the day. Um, kind of on a kick with old country, and uh, 
was thinking today, like Willie Nelson, man, Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain. Ever since I played a couple of Willie songs for you uh, earlier this month, I just, I've had that song go in my head. So I'll play Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain. I think that what a lot of people that are familiar and heard that song before don't know is it's part of an album that eventually became a movie after a very long-sorted way that we're way too late in the show today to tell you about today called Red-Headed Stranger. And it's a, it's a tragic story. I'm not going to give it to you today. It's one you can look up, but it, it's, it, it's pretty interesting. And uh, it eventually became a movie that I think it was made in 85 or something like that or even later. And, and Willie and some other folks basically bought back the rights to it. It was Willie's album and then the script came out of that and, and, and so, you know, major movies were going to make it and they did and then HBO was going to make it and they did and then finally they just made it independently. And it's a, it's a movie that, you know, came again from 80s or 90s, but it looks like a movie from the 70s. And uh, Willie himself is in it. It's a pretty good movie, something you might want to check out and, This song, if you learn the story, will take on a whole new meaning. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Goodbye and part I knew we'd never meet again Love is like a dying ember And only memories remain I'll remember Blue eyes crying in the rain No part 